From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Around the world, and in rural areas with limited resources, many traditional ways of life are not always safe for the population. In the villages of southwest Uganda, one dollar of kerosene in an oil lamp may provide light to a family for a full week, but this method of lighting homes also produces harmful indoor air pollution. Dr. Peggy Lai has studied the impacts of kerosene lighting in Uganda measuring the amount of lung-damaging small particles that result from burning oil indoors. Dr. Lai and her colleagues have been testing whether solar-powered lighting systems reduce exposure to indoor air pollution in these rural villages. She joins us to talk about her work, how to manage data from thousands of miles away, and the innovative ways her team developed to measure exposure to indoor air pollution. Dr. Peggy Lai is an assistant professor of medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital and a research associate at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Dr. Lai, welcome. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for the invitation. So the last time you were on the show with us in 2017, you had been working, um, or you were just about to start a study in Uganda looking at um, an intervention on indoor air pollution. Could you give us a little background about what you were looking at um, and what the problem you're hoping to solve was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so when I first went to Uganda in 2015, I um, actually was not intending to look at um, household air pollution. It was kind of an accident. We were measuring sort of microbes in the indoor environment. And then um, in speaking to um, local collaborators over there, when I asked them, you know, what do you think about indoor air pollution? Thinking that everyone would say, oh, you know, cook stoves are a problem. Actually, nobody talked about the cooking. Um, they said, do you know we use these kerosene lamps and, you know, they're so polluting. Have you ever thought about that? And so it was sort of an accidental discovery. Um, and so we actually built a uh, uh, the observational study around the question of does your primary lighting source um, affect indoor air pollution? And um, to our great surprise, what you use for lighting actually was the greatest predictor of um, indoor air pollution inside your house. Um, I'll probably just describe the lighting bit a little bit more. Yeah, if you I could, think... yeah, just describe how the people that you have been working with light their homes. Um, it's very different from how we do in the U.S. or many other parts of the world. So, could you just describe? how that looks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so uh, I work in a rural part of Uganda, in the southwest part of Uganda. And so um, people live in these uh, villages in a rather hilly area. Um, and so very few people actually have electricity in their households, um, unless they're right by the main road. Um, and so um, there are several different forms of lighting. And so if you are very wealthy, um, you could have solar panels installed inside your home um, and you would have solar-based lighting. Um, or you could buy these little solar lanterns that you would have to put outside and charge every day. And there's also the risk of theft because obviously, you know, they're small and easy to take away. Um, and so that's sort of one category of lighting. 
Another category would be sort of battery-powered flashlights or actually mobile phones, essentially, is another big way people kind of get light. Um, but it's problematic because um, if you want to charge your phone, for example, you have to go down to a store and pay to charge your phone or the batteries are actually quite expensive. But that's not another big category. Um, and then uh, another category that we focused on um, is actually using kerosene. Um, they call kerosene paraffin over there. Um, for lighting. And so if you were a little wealthier, you would have these hurricane lamps. So there are these like glass panel lamps, um, and then you pour kerosene in it and you can burn it. Um, but really the vast majority of people um, use these what we call open wick kerosene lamps. And so what they do is they like um, take a tomato can essentially and they resolder the top so that they can put in a wick. And then they go to the petrol station. They buy a little bottle of petrol and they pour it in and then they burn that. Um, and so it's the cheapest form of lighting. And so to give you an idea, it's about a dollar to buy enough paraffin for a week. Um, but it's enormously polluting um, because I was testing uh, one of these lamps with a, a, a monitor that we were testing out. And uh, within uh, 30 seconds of lighting this lamp, I set off the fire alarm <laughs> in, in the apartment. Um, and so people burn these for one to two hours at night for light, um, which is, you know, you can just imagine how much they're exposed to. And the other issue with these lamps is um, they're very dim, actually. Um, so you have to be very close to the flame. Um, and so you're really exposed to a tremendous amount of pollution. Um, unlike cooking, where you can kind of light the fire, put the stove on, you can leave. Um mm. With these paraffin lamps, you really can't because it's only useful to you when it, you know, it gives you light. So you had to be right next to it. And then there's this fire hazard associated with it, too. Um, and so those are kind of the general ways that people would light their homes. Um, and that was one thing that we did describe in, in our study when we first did it. And so the study design is we recruited 80 households and we randomized them in a one-to-one -one fashion to get actually a whole solar lighting system um, or to continue their original lighting source. Um, and uh, we um, did our recruitment and some pilot testing in February. Then we rolled out the study in March of 2018. So now we're just starting, we're one month into our one-year follow-up. Mm -hmm. um, and so in terms of the intervention, which is the solar lighting system, uh, we actually were very intentional about choosing a local provider and um, identifying a package that would normally be provided. And so um, the whole solar lighting system consists of a solar panel, a battery, um, this thing called a charge controller, which regulates the energy going into and out of the battery, um, wiring, and then four electrical bulbs, which um, the participant could choose where they wanted to put it. Um, and the important thing about sort of, you know, this intervention is that um, it comes with a five-year panel warranty. So if the solar panel breaks within five years, it would get replaced by the company. And also comes with a two-year service warranty, meaning if your bulbs flickered or died or some component um, was broken, um, the company would actually come and fix it within 48 hours. Um, and so this is kind of a normal package. Um, in terms of the cost, um, so it's about 140 to 150 U.S. dollars. Um, so that includes everything, and this is a, sort of the typical price of a solar system there. Um, and so that's the intervention. Mm -hmm. um, and what we did was we recruited women um, from the household, uh, from 80 different households to be sort of the primary people that we were targeting. Um, and we actually didn't specify that they had to be people who use kerosene. Um, we okay. were curious about whether this intervention would be important for people using all different lighting sources. Um, 
We even have some people who are connected to the national grid or even some people who have small solar systems. And the reason why we made those decisions was that we realized there's something called lamp stacking, um, meaning um, so for um, the national grid, you had to pay monthly. And if you didn't, you know, your electricity would get cut off. And so, you know, the way that money works is quite seasonal in these rural areas. And so some months they might have enough money to pay for electricity and some don't. And so... Um, people would alternate between kerosene lamps and the national grid, for example. Or um, some solar companies um, have devised a way um, where you can buy the solar systems by paying monthly. And then if you uh, don't pay your you know, your monthly payment for a month or two, they can actually remotely cut off your solar system. And so people alternate even with solar systems between solar and you know paraffin or kerosene. Okay, so there's even if somebody has... A hookup to the grid or a solar panel, they might actually use a paraffin lamp mm-hmm. to fill in gaps when their other service gets cut off. Yeah, or when there is not enough, you know, like some of the solar systems are quite small and only have one bulb. And so, for example, if you need light in your kitchen, in your bedroom, in your living mm-hmm. room, mm-hmm. or outdoors, or things like that, um, people often can only afford one light. Um, and so then they kind of do this lamp stacking thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of what we were targeting was just, you know, the general population in this area that we were sampling. Um, and so uh, that was the population, the intervention. And then the things we were tracking, um, there were several things. And so the first thing we wanted to track was if we gave you a solar system, do you actually stop using your original lighting source and start using the solar system? And so that was one big question. Um, the second big question was, does the solar system actually reduce the amount of air pollution that you're exposed to? Um, and the third question centered around um, just health effects. So, you know, your lung function, your heart health, uh, things like that. And then um, early on this year, we actually added a new aspect, which is something called a qualitative study, where um, instead of, you know, you know, sending out surveys like, you know, a yes, no questions or multiple choices, more of an open-ended interview, you know, things like, you know, how has the solar system changed your life? Or what did you like about the system? What did not you not like? You know, how would you design it if you could? Mm-hmm. Um, things like that. So that's kind of the general structure of our study. Okay. And how did you measure the kerosene lamp usage? You said that you invented a sensor to monitor those. Yeah, we, um, uh, so I work with these amazing engineers at the Harvard School of Public Health. And so we kind of put our heads together and mm-hmm. like thought very deeply and then did a lot of piloting. And so um, we adapted um, available sensors that measure um, uh, temperature and light. Because if you think about like a kerosene lamp, it's like trying to measure when you use a candle or not, right? Like, how do you tell? Um, and so obviously, when you have a burning source, it emits light and it emits uh, or it increases the temperature. And so um, we attach these light and temperature sensors um, to the kerosene lamps um, for two weeks at a time. Um, and then we actually collect data every minute. Um, and so minute by minute, we can track the temperature and the light. Um, and so when you uh, light a kerosene lamp, the temperature starts going up, you know, slowly over the course of several minutes, and then the light intensity changes immediately. Um, and so what we did was we had to write a computer algorithm to figure out what corresponds to lighting events and what doesn't. And it mm. turns out that Fortunately for us, um, when you light a kerosene lamp, there's a very characteristic light and temperature uh, signature mm-hmm. um, that we could, you know, create an algorithm around. And so that's how we detected when people were and were not using their kerosene lamps. So the focus of the study was on indoor air pollution. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about how you tried to measure that and um, how you piloted 
the sensors that you used? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, measuring pollution can be divided into uh, measuring pollution in what we call a stationary monitor. So you put the monitor in one room, like the kitchen or the living room. Um, but the problem with that is it doesn't actually measure what uh, that person is being exposed to, right? Because they don't spend 24-7 um, in the living room. And as I mentioned, with these kerosene lamps, the closer you are to it, the more you get exposed um, in terms of air pollution. Um, and so we did have a stationary monitor in the living room, but we knew that was not enough. And so um, since 2015, we've been trying to get find ways to get people to wear monitors, Um and so the monitors are composed of a battery pack um, that powers uh, two pumps. Um, so one pump is um, drawing air um, through a filter, and so we can measure sort of average um, air pollution levels over, say, you know, two or three days. Um, but that's not actually very helpful because, as I mentioned, with lighting, um, you get these intense short periods of exposure, um, say from like 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. at night. And so if you average that signal over the whole day, you actually lose the intensity of exposure. Mm. And so um, we use these things called real-time PM 2.5 monitors. And so in real-time, it would track changes, for example, um, in your air pollution exposures. And so it's a lot of equipment to put on someone. <laughs> um, right. And so uh, in 2015, we tried to monitor uh, using equipment we would use uh, in the U.S. in like industrial settings, like measuring a factory worker's exposure. And these monitors compose of um, a pump that you clip to someone's belt. Um, and then um, the inlet where, you know, you draw the air in is clipped to someone's lapel. But that's obviously a really dumb way to try and measure um, pollution in Uganda because the women don't wear pants and they don't have lapels. Um, and they do, our participants are all farm workers. And so it would fall off within like five minutes, basically. Yeah. So it wouldn't work. Right. <laughs> um, and so in 2016, then we said, okay, we're going to design these fabric crossbody purses um, and we'll make it out of local fabric so it wouldn't look so weird. Um, and then we gave it to our participants and they refused to wear them. Um, so even though we made it out of local fabric, people were embarrassed to wear them for some reason. Um, and so we had to schedule around like parties or other like family events. And then the other issue was that because they were crossbody bags, um, when people were hoeing or digging in their gardens, um, it would fling around and it was just really uncomfortable and inconvenient. So like people also like a lot of people refused to wear them, too. Um, and so uh, before we did our randomized trial, actually, we had the brilliant idea um, of uh, putting them in marathon running vests. Um, and so the marathon running vests are very comfortable to wear for long periods of time, obviously, because that's right. where, you know, that that's what they were designed for. And they're adjustable as well. Um, and they have pockets so you can store things. In right, them. exactly. And so like the pockets in the front where you put your snacks are actually at exactly the right level to put like air pollution monitors. And then we put the battery pack in the back. Um and to our great surprise, people loved wearing them. Um, they thought it looked like a uniform, so they felt very professional wearing them. And so we had people wear them for three days even. Um, one of our participants actually had to bring her baby to the hospital because he was sick. And so she showed up in the hospital wearing the vest. <laughs> she didn't even take it off. Like that's sort of how, how committed they were to wearing these vests. And so we knew we had found sort of the right thing. Mm. Um, to package our personal monitors and at least for our population. How long did it take before when you first tried that lapel mounted monitor for until you got one that worked? Uh, it was about three years of trying different things. 
Um, and the first time we tried it, we couldn't use any of the data basically because like people refused to wear them or they fell off or they just were not reliable. And so, you know, along with evolving the methods to carry the samplers, um, we've also evolved how we design the samplers. Um, and so one big issue with air pollution monitoring is that if you buy, you know, sort of something from a company that's already preset, um, if something breaks, like even like a little fuse, if it burns out, the entire sort of unit is non-functional. And I know I had a colleague who was trying to do air pollution research there too, and she bought these um, pumps um, that if they ever broke, like you had to send it back to the U.S. and then they had to fix it and send it back over. And so in a year, she was only able to measure 10 measurements essentially of air pollution, whereas in our study, like we had to measure hundreds, even up to a 1,000. Um, and so we continually evolved um, how we uh, design our equipment, essentially. So we actually treat the equipment as a consumable. Mm -hmm. um, and so yeah. every component, the flow meter, the wiring, the battery pack, you know, the monitors, whatever, actually every component can be swapped out for another cheap alternative. Um, and I've also taught the team how to troubleshoot and diagnose what needs to be swapped out. Um, and so in that way, we can continue doing our study activities without running into trouble with, you know, this monitor doesn't break, so I need to wait a month um, for a new one to come in. Um, and I think that's a really critical part of doing air pollution research um, is that you can't assume that if it works here in the U.S. where there's stable electricity power, where the air is relatively clean, that that thing will also work in Uganda. We really had to think about how to design um, systems that were easily replaceable with components that we sent there locally um, that were easy to fix and that could sustain just really unstable power. Because like there are a lot of power surges that fry equipment, sensitive equipment in Uganda, and that certainly happens in other studies too. So could you talk about the way that you um, interface with the local population and how you monitor the study from here. Mm -hmm. You do visit Uganda frequently, but when you're back in Boston, when issues come up, how do you resolve those? And do you have a team there that can fix those issues? Yeah, that's a great question. And so uh, when I first started working there, I did spend several months living there and, and training the team. Um, but since then, you know, like, how do you actually monitor a study from the U.S. when all the activities are in Uganda? How do you troubleshoot? How do you make sure that, you know, sort of uh, you understand what's going on on the ground? Um, and so there are several things that I do. So we capture all our data in real time, meaning that when we do surveys, for example, um, we capture them on a tablet and they're uploaded to a database that day, which I can access like any hour of the day, basically. And so I can track which surveys are present, which are missing, the quality of the surveys, um, things like that. And I think that's pretty critical because I've had colleagues who've um, worked in resource limited settings where they collect surveys on paper. And then at the end, they enter into a database. And that's when they realize, oh, my gosh, everyone filled out the survey incorrectly, but you can't go backwards anymore. Um, and so I think real-time uploading of the data is really critical for monitoring quality. Um, and similarly with our sensor data, um, we actually just put it in a business Dropbox um, folder. And so I can see every single day when they download, say, the solar lighting sensor data, I can look at it and say, oh, okay, interesting. Um, and that actually helps with troubleshooting because um, we label all our uh, sensors and equipment with different identification numbers. And so if they're telling me, oh, you know, VEST 3 isn't working, I can look at those files and help them troubleshoot. Um, one thing I think is really important, actually, is to invest in your team over there. And so I've spent a lot of time 
not just training them on the actual procedure, but on the rationale behind the different decisions that we make. You know, why do we use this sensor and not that one? Why do we sit it to one minute and not 10 minutes? Things like that. Um, so that they can make decisions on the ground in the field um, because they understand why we're doing things a certain way or what the function of this, you know, survey is. Um, and then every time I go, so I try to go every three to four months um, just to see how things are going and also to, you know, sort of, you know, interface with my collaborators over there. But I prepare for it like I prepare for like a grant review or something like I collate all the data, you know, I make figures and then. I spend an hour or two with the team showing them all the data that they collected um, mm. so that they can sort of see the fruits of their labors, essentially. And that keeps them quite motivated. Um, but also I discover things because I'll be like, what about this weird signal? Like, what do you think that is? And they'll be like, oh, I remember, you know, like this person, you know, lost this thing and that's why. And so I think it's actually really critical to feedback the data to your team over there. So they get a sense of accomplishment about what they're doing, but then also they can help you interpret the data. And so that's one thing that I, I make a priority always is to show the team the data they've collected so far. And the team that you're working with, who are they and where did you recruit them from? Are they from a university or they? how did you get hooked up with them? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So um, I work with Mbara University of Science and Technology, which is um, a university in Southwest Uganda. Um, and so... We have to hire everyone through their human resources department. Um, but um, I found that it's not necessary, actually, to hire people with prior research exper experience because sometimes you, you can't teach people to unlearn bad habits mm. or, or they think they know so much when they actually don't. Um, and so, for example, one of my field officers is someone who's never done research before, but in a prior job, she actually worked for one of the local solar companies. And so she knew a lot about solar systems, about how to educate participants and how to maintain the systems and what you can and can't do with the systems. And, and she was also very detail-oriented, and um, she was also very good with Excel, because believe it or not, you can't assume that everyone knows how to use Excel or Word. It's just um, not everybody has had access to those tools. Um, and so um, I uh, basically, um, there's a formalized way of hiring where you put out an ad saying, you know, we want to hire people with these skills, um, and then people submit their CVs and they apply, and then you select some for in-person interviews. And so, um, in the beginning, actually, I was at there for every in-person interview for every person that we hired. Um, but one thing I found helpful was actually, I would ask, um, people on the team, so other research assistants, um, to actually join me on interviews and they had a role actually in selecting um, their future colleague, which I thought was very helpful mm -hmm. um, because it just helped with team morale, but also you ensure that everybody got along, which I think is a really important thing. You're primarily a quantitative researcher, mm -hmm. and you talked about having to do some more qualitative analysis and um, open-ended surveys. Could you talk a little bit about what those surveys look like and what you learned from those? Yeah, absolutely. So I have to say this is a really new area of science for me because I've always been trained as a very quantitative person. I love data. I love numbers. I love being able to put percentages and, you know, make distributions on things. Um, but uh, this year we actually added on a qualitative study. Um, I had been talking to a colleague in Uganda who does a lot of research, and he was telling me about all the interesting things he learned. And so um, what this qualitative survey consisted of was um, we created a semi-structured interview guide. And so we asked people questions along certain themes like, 
you know, for the intervention group, you know, things like how did this uh, solar lighting system change your life? Uh, or well, number one, did it? And then number two, how? Um, and also just about general beliefs and attitudes about lighting. Um, and we were very surprised, actually. I have uh, come to really respect the importance of qualitative research, especially for global health research, because you can't design a good survey if you don't know what elements to include, right? Um, and so I'll give you some examples. Um, so um, for the solar lighting systems, we asked, you know, what did you like and what did you not like? Um, and so there was very little people didn't like. You know, there were mostly worries around, you know, I'm afraid that a rat will chew on a wire and my system will go down or, or you know, things like that. Um, but there were obvious things. And so people liked the solar lighting systems because it was convenient because you didn't need to take something out to charge it and bring it back in. Um they liked that it was bright. Um, they liked that um, there were no adverse health effects, uh, meaning that there was no pollution generated or things like that. Um, but one thing that really surprised us was um, light made people feel safe. Um, and so we were a little surprised because, as I mentioned, we let people choose where they wanted to put their light bulbs. We didn't dictate that. And um, I would say over half of the households wanted what they called an outdoor security light. And mm. I was like, what is that? Um and so um, either in front or behind the house, you know, at night people do a lot of activities like, you know, they wash their clothes or, you know, they take baths or things like that. But one participant, you know, because these are interviews that we record and we transcribe um, word for word. And so one participant said, well, you know, uh, when I'm showering, someone can come and kill you in the darkness. Um, but after I got the light, I'm not worried anymore. And those were literally her words. Wow. Um, and there were other people who said, you know, when someone comes in the middle of the night and you hear a sound outside your door, you can be scared. But if you turn on the light, they go away. Mm. Um, and so there's this tremendous sense of safety and security associated with having light at night, um, which we, we didn't realize. Mm. Um, it wasn't even on our radar. And I think this is pretty important because uh, one of the issues with other randomized trials, like in the cook stove trials to reduce air pollution, people stopped using um, the improved cook stoves very quickly. And so, like, getting people to commit to using a new technology is really hard. Um, but our suspicion is based on all the values that people have assigned to solar lighting. So it's not just the convenience. It's not just a lack of smoke. Um, it's the sense of I feel safe when I have light at night, and so I'm going to continue using it. And so I think that's quite encouraging. Um, there are also other things that we found like really interesting. And so one participant said, you know, you know, you know, your solar lighting saved my marriage. And we we're like, how? <laughs> and so um, she said that, you know, I would quarrel with my husband about buying paraffin every mm. day. And, you know, we would fight when I use paraffin for too long because he would be worried that I would use up the weak stock. Um, but since, you know, the solar lighting was installed, there's no reason to fight because there's enough light for everyone and for all the activities that we need. Um, and so it just really reduced a source of tension um, between her and her husband. And, you know, she said that it saved her marriage. And so it's just been really rewarding to do these interviews and to learn all these new things about the reality of what people's lives are like and what these interventions might do. Early on in this project, when I was trying to design air samplers that would work in Uganda, meaning, you know, doesn't have to be attached to, you know, electricity, um, can be charged, um, won't get stolen, won't break easily. Um, I actually, um, I had um, done my master's of public health at the Harvard School of Public Health. And actually, I do have a research associate appointment there. And so, 
I very fortunately got referred to an incredible engineer by the name of Jose Valerino. Um, and so Jose had worked on, um, on some studies maybe five or ten years ago um, trying to do air pollution monitoring um, in other parts of Africa. Um, and so um, he already understood the the principles, meaning, you know, make sure that components are swappable, you know, mm -hmm. like how do you um, package things so that um, – people will be willing to wear them and things like that. And so I fortunately got referred to him pretty early on. And so okay. it's been a great collaboration because he understands like electricity and, you know, sort of like mm. engineering, how to devise devices, how to monitor. And um, is he at the public health school? Yeah, he's at the school of public health. Um, and so what I did was we talked constantly when we were devising new um, devices because what I knew was I had spent a lot of time in the field. And so I would tell him, you know, this is too loud or, you know, like these are issues, you know, or, mm. you know, these filters are very difficult to use, you know, people mess them up, things like that. And so it was sort of a collaboration um, of like uh, my on in the field knowledge and his sort of engineering expertise. Um, plus, um, there are a lot of faculty um, who are in the exposure science um, division. Um, and so they kind of knew a lot about physics and about, you know, how to, you know, create things. Um, and so... I worked with an assistant professor um, at the School of Public Health, um, Joe Allen, who was an exposure scientist. Um, and so we talked. And then for some of the big data analysis, I mean, one thing I didn't mention is that all these sensors generate incredible amounts of data. Mm. Even just from our baseline testing, um, the data file for PM 2.5 was over 20 million rows, if you can imagine. Yeah, <laughs> and and that's just like just, I'm just one very imagining an Excel spreadsheet of no, like you can't. Rows and like, yeah, uh, no, okay. it's yeah. twenty million rows, and wow. so like um, I uh, you know, so my background is like big data, um, but then I also worked with um, Nick Lamb, who initially trained at Berkeley and is now at Humboldt University, who had actually been interested in kerosene for a long time, hmm. and so working with him to develop the algorithms, for example, to know when the lamps were being used, because he's had prior experience. And so it really was pulling people from different expertises and walks of life um, to work on this one problem. Right. Yeah, but I mean, I think, you know, like if I was in a different location, it would have been more difficult to sort of, you know, walk across the street and say, hey, you know, Jose, you know, I brought back this monitor today and it seems to be broken. Can you take a look at it and see what's wrong? And so I think just having all these people in such a, a uh, small amount of uh, space, I think, is great for just exchange of ideas and being able to be creative, essentially. Um, I feel like the best science happens when you have this crazy idea, you scribble it down on the back of a napkin and you show it to someone and they can turn it into, like, reality. <laughs> um, and that's that's when I think when science works really well. Dr. Lai, thank you. This has been a great conversation. Thanks for inviting me again. Next time on Think Research. When you know a trauma injury occurs and you need to replant, reattach the, the part, usually uh, transport it in a mixture of water and ice. Surprisingly, other than that, not much is available clinically. Dr. Giorgio Jetsidis of Brigham and Women's Hospital reshapes how we think about temperature control and tissue preservation. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.